0: It's easy to think of revolutions as a clash of opposing sides. But for most people, the practical concerns outweigh grand, lofty ideals. What about the regular people who just happen to be caught in the middle? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author Rowena Miller. Her historical fantasy trilogy, The Unraveled Kingdom, concluded last week with the release of Rule. Rowena and I discuss mail delivery chickens, the delightful niche geekdom that is living history, and the effects of neutrality in the face of oppression. So let's just go ahead and jump right into our interview. Without any further ado, Rowena Miller. Rowena Miller, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. It's great to have you here today.
1: I am so excited to be here with you.
0: Yeah, it's a crazy time out there. So I'm glad you were uh, able to set aside some time and have this chat.
1: Well, it's definitely good to find um, new and fun social distancing activities to fill the long weeks of what I'm calling quarantine Spring. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) I'm 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 excited to talk fantasy and, and geek out for a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, uh, before we jump into fantasy geekery, I'm really curious because you put this in your bio all the time. What is this whole trespassing while hiking situation?
1: So, um, I, I grew up kind of out in the country and, um, like woodland, Indiana, uh, sort of area. And my dad used to take me for hikes all the time. Um, and it was only as I was older that I realized that we had no respect for like where our property line ended and other people started. <laughs> so I kind of like learned early, like when, when you find a good trail, you just kind of keep going and you know, there are flowers over there, you know, two properties away we're going to hike on over and pick some. Um, but I, I also kind of feel like it's, it's a little bit like writing in a way that you, you kind of start on a hike and you, you're drafting and you're going along and all of a sudden you, you, you're trespassing into something you never expected to write about, but it it can be surprising and a good thing. So It's a bit of a, a life motto, I guess, is go ahead and trespass while hiking.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great life motto, I think, uh, as long as you're not finding those creepy cabins in the woods or something like that. This
1: is true. Yeah, if you hear banjos, just turn around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Paddle faster. Well, a uh, question I kind of like to ask everyone, I'm always curious to hear, how did you first fall in love with science fiction and fantasy, and when did you decide to become a writer?
1: Um, well, I'd always loved reading and loved books. And in fact, I, I loved books even before I could read. I apparently used to like unpack my parents' bookshelves and like take the covers off of things, which they didn't really like that much. Um, and I think the first book I actually did that to was my dad's Julian May books. So I guess I had a love of science fiction and fantasy from a really early age. Um, but I I was just fascinated by the idea of, like, I think as, even as a little kid, the idea that you know, this book, it's full of written words and somebody created this and they got to tell me a story. And how cool is that? And so some of my earliest memories were creating picture books out of construction paper. And I guess I just never stopped. So <laughs> I really loved a lot of um, fantasy, especially as a kid. I love like the Lloyd Alexander books and the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. yes. And those just really, you know, I probably gave me an escape when I was a bored or lonely kid, and I always appreciated how fantasy could do that, could kind of be an escape valve. And as I've gotten older, I've really appreciated how it's also a wonderful way to turn a mirror back on the real world, and you kind of get to play in either way, whatever you need at the moment. Um, So I love that about fantasy.
0: Yeah, and so would this love for fantasy be what inspired you? I think you have some sort of formal writing education, right?
1: Uh yes and yes and no my undergrad is in history and french and i ended up going back for a masters in english much later cuz i kind of fell in love with teaching and so i wanted to do more of that so i got a masters But it actually isn't in writing. I actually got my master's in um, film and lit, which really focuses on like adaptation and how do we create narrative and how does narrative change depending on various medium and the audience and all kinds of fun stuff. So I kind of often say that my education grew out of the fact that I can't shut up about stories. So I find a story I like and I want to talk about it a lot. Um, So I I got a master's degree to help me do that more effectively, I guess.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think wanting to talk about stories is a very appropriate trait for a writer.
1: This is true.
0: And and so I think uh, you've mentioned, are you like a writing tutor or you teach some writing classes?
1: Um, I've done both. Um, Right now I'm kind of on, um, have been for the, the last couple of years on um young kid hiatus but um yeah i had, had tutored writing um both in person and asynchronous i have um taught writing coursework um and i love all of it i love really working with students on their writing process because we all um, have such different writing processes, um, and it's really fun to work with students to see them kind of realize, like, oh, oh, outlines are where it's at, and that works for me, or <laughs> wow, this does not work for me, and I'm going to try something else. And um, so, I really enjoy that, um, just because, I mean, you, you talk to any. Any group of writers, and we all do things differently. So kind of inspiring students that like, no, really, that's normal and it's okay. And you got to find what works for you. That's the part that I like the most.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what's the saying where like to really learn something, you teach something. Uh, So I imagine that definitely helps.
1: I think there's some truth to that. Yeah.
0: Sidestepping just a little bit, a tangent from the writing. I see that you're an 18th century reenactor, which just sounds so fascinating to me. So can you talk a little bit about what this means? Like what kind of reenacting you do?
1: Sure. So it's a little niche geekdom um, that some of us get into. It's always funny because when I mention that I do living history, I do reenactment stuff, people always assume, oh, like civil war. And I'm like, well, like civil war, but but not. Um, Back up, back up a little bit but I actually, I, something I actually grew up doing. It's sort of a family friendly hobby, um, oddly enough, but my parents were into it when I was little and I grew up in the hobby. And the kind of fun thing about living history is that everyone sort of falls into having some niche or interest or something that they really love about it. And so as I grew up, I, I really fell in love with, um, historical clothing and clothing construction and researching the heck out of that and researching um, various, you know, changes over time and between ethnicities and, and all kinds of fun, geeky stuff. Um, And what's really fun is you get together at these events and everyone has a different weird geeky interest. So you're hanging out with, you know, people who are into the military tactics or they're into blacksmithing or they're into food ways. Or, I mean, I, I know people who are into stuff as specific as, you know, what breeds of horses and how were horses trained and and things like that. So it's, it's a fun, weird, geeky little corner (laughs) of the world and something that honestly, um, missing a lot right now, because this would be sort of the beginning of our season where we start, having events at historical sites or at parks that have invited us to come and do educational presentations. And with, with COVID-19, that's, that's not happening, um, for at least the first half of this year. So, so we're, we're missing being out there and spreading our, our geekery to others.
0: Yeah, I, I can definitely imagine And I think it's interesting, too, that so many people immediately jump to, oh, civil war reenactment, as if the violent parts of history are the only fun parts of history.
1: Right, right. And one of the things I've loved seeing with living history over the past, you know, decade or a little bit more is that there's been so much more interest in the civilian side of of even of conflicts that, you know, the American Revolution is going on. And yes, there are battles and yes, there are armies, but it's impacting every individual person. And so what does that look like from a civilian perspective and how is civilian life intersecting with these military campaigns? So it's, it's really kind of fun to watch um, the hobby blossom out into something more inclusive and, from my perspective, more interesting. But yes, we always, people always assume, you know, like, oh, it's a civil war. And I was, you know, jokingly answer like, no, there's nothing civil about us. In fact, we're <laughs> revolting.
0: So. And I don't think we could ask for a better segue into talking about your books.
1: I suppose so.
0: The Unraveled Kingdom trilogy, which as of the time that this episode is releasing, will have just released the final book, Rule. So I guess, could you give us a little bit about it? What's the thesis statement, if you will, for the series?
1: Thesis statement? Wow, we're, we're really diving into my, uh, my composition teaching roots here. <laughs> <laughs> um, So the the idea is it's a kind of classic people rise up and overthrow the government story, but it really focuses a lot on ordinary individual people and the choices they have to make to get to a point where they're able to um, envision themselves taking that kind of agency against something as, as daunting as overthrowing a governmental system. And the kind of choices that people make and the relationships that they forge guiding a lot of how they experience big historical events unfolding.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess, again, with that slightly more civilian side of things, maybe someone who at least initially is not at the forefront of the violent conflict.
1: Right. And by rule, we do have probably more traditional, um, what you might think of as military storylines and armies and, and things like that. But a lot of the other things in the, in the books that end up being really impactful on the final outcome is logistics. And, you know, how do you feed an army? How do you get supplies? You know, how do you, um, how do you affect alliances that are going to benefit you long-term? So kind of balancing the military side of things with some of the, um, other pragmatisms that a revolution spawns.
0: And was that sort of difficult for you to balance those two sides? Did you find like one came more naturally to you than the other?
1: Um, to, to some degree, I, I actually have found myself kind of having to like rein in some of the logistics stuff just because you can, you can really <laughs> go down rabbit holes that, oh, readers don't want to read quite that much <laughs> about, you know, how much the cornmeal costs compared to the flour and how we're going to store this and that. And, you know, so, um, so there's a bit of tempering of some of my impulses to dive really deeply into some of the nerdier stuff that, um, isn't quite as exciting to read on the page.
0: Sort of the whole, do your research, but maybe don't put all of it directly on right. the page for the reader.
1: <laughs> don't show your work. <laughs> Let your reader yeah. trust you, but it's there.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, more on the character side of things. So, Sophie, at least initially, and then throughout really the entire series, is kind of torn between the nobility and then also sort of the working class commoners at the heart of this conflict in the nation. So how was it writing a protagonist who's so torn between conflicting goals? Uh, Did you have any challenges with that?
1: Definitely. I think that one of the things that I centered Sophie's goals and motivations on was the idea of stability, that she values stability. She comes from um, an immigrant family that is working class background. She's worked herself up to having a successful business and the idea of losing it is terrifying to her. And to compound that, she supports financially her brother, um, who also brings money into the family, but really it's, it's her financial success that's keeping the family afloat. So her goals at the beginning of the series are very much about personal stability in order to continue to support her family. So when you put that goal in contrast with societal upheaval, that turns into a real conflict and tension because We often talk about revolution as though it's happening between entities. But there are people who are caught in the middle of the whole time. And any time that you have any kind of huge social or military or economic or any kind of revolution, you have people whose lives are kind of tossed out with the bathwater. And we can certainly decide that that's something that is worth pursuing, either fictionally or in real life. But there's collateral. And Sophie is at first very worried about being that collateral.
0: Right. I know something that stood out for me about Sophie is normally... When I read about a revolution story in fantasy, we're either getting the perspective of, you know, someone who's at the very, very bottom of society or potentially maybe you're the elite ruling class and then everything's starting to turmoil. But Sophie's kind of clawed her way up to be a respectable middle, maybe slightly upper middle class. Uh, So that felt definitely a little bit a different perspective.
1: Right. And the idea of neutrality for someone like that or attempting to achieve neutrality Um, As she kind of finds out over the course of the series that that is pretty much impossible to be truly neutral in a conflict. But she has a lot to lose. And I think that that complicated the decisions that she made was that, you know, when you have something that you are afraid of losing or something that you care about so much, it, it complicates your decision making. I thought quite a bit while I was especially drafting book one about, you know, the fact that we think about, for example, the American Revolution. And we think of, you know, we know there were patriots and there were loyalists, but what we don't talk about is that up to a third of people in the colonies were neutral or changed their minds. And so what was going through those people's minds? What was, you know, inspiring them to want to stay out of this conflict? I think we often want to just fall back on, well, they were cowards or they didn't have any, you know backbone. They just stand up for what you believe in. But sometimes what you believe in is more complicated than picking a side. And maybe there was something they cared about that mattered more to them than any of the politics happening, you know, on a large scale in their world. So Sophia's balancing, you know, that impulse of there are things that matter more to me that I love more than any of these ideas while realizing you can't actually stay neutral, especially in, the, in a situation where there is an oppressed and an oppressor. Neutrality is really only backing up the oppressor.
0: Right. And uh, I guess something that I also noticed going off of that is that really it felt like one of the main antagonists, especially in Torn, but throughout the entire series, is just sort of the political system feels like the enemy. It's not specifically one person on either side, or even one side or the other. Uh, It's just a system that lets the quote-unquote good people in power stay in power without really examining that. What challenges did you face with having sort of that as the antagonist driving the conflict?
1: So you're absolutely right that, you know, that was definitely what I wanted to code as the antagonist was not an individual person, but the system itself, that an unjust system can itself be the thing that is providing the root of the conflict in a story. I think one of the most difficult things with that is that often when we are writing a story, we use people as stand-ins for those bigger ideas. And so we have a um, villain who is a member of the system that we want to critique in order to kind of have that person as an analog for what we're really putting up as the antagonist. And I wanted to complicate things for myself, apparently, um, by introducing you in the storyline to members of the elite who are, of course, extremely, you know, know—they're um, the system that is benefiting them is extremely problematic. They're extremely privileged without really realizing it or recognizing it, but they're not bad people, quote unquote, they're not motivated by the kind of classic evil villain things that we might easily fall back on those analogs having. And then I kind of flipped that and had a, a member of the revolutionary group having kind of questionable motives and ending up being a somewhat shadowy villain figure because the people in a conflict often have multiple uh, motivations and their motivations may not always line up with the pure ideals of the conflict that they are fighting with. So I I definitely complicated it for myself a little bit, but what I (laughs) hoped kind of came through was that, you know, the, the system is problematic. People who benefit from the system eventually do need to recognize that and, and do something about that because even the, you know, nice people who are nicely trying to do nice things as members of a privileged class still holds an unjust amount of power. And when, you know, Sophie kind of realizes this, that even though these people are nice and they are helping me, they could decide not to at any point. And that's kind of a turning point in her understanding and reading of the conflict that she's seeing.
0: Yeah, and I I think you have a really good point when you mentioned that uh, a lot of times we kind of code ideas into people as antagonists. And sometimes it feels like the idea is, oh, well, this villain is so evil, they also do these things that are terrible. And that shows further that their ideas are terrible. But sometimes it kind of separates the person from the idea by doing that as well. So it's interesting to have like a good guy be the bad guy sort of in certain situations.
1: Right. And, you know, I also kind of wanted to make the revolutionaries a little bit messy in some ways, you know, the, the way that we narrativize revolution is very frequently, you have the oppressive baddies and the revolutionary resistance, good guys stand up against them and you have a fight and maybe the fight is bloody. And, and that's where the grim kind of part comes into it, but then it's over and everyone's past the problem. But, you know, in, reality people have complicated motivations. And when you look at historical revolutions and just the amount of infighting and, you know, you have your first wave revolutionaries who get displaced by second wave revolutionaries who are kind of like, well, that that wasn't revolutionary enough. And, and we're going to accelerate this to ways that level one's kind of like, no, we weren't going to do that. Hold on. Let's have a fight about that. And even in our own, you know, American Revolution here in the U.S., just the complication of you have people who are mounting a successful military campaign and then a successful creation of a government while participating in extremely unjust activities like slaveholding and making very sure that women were not going to be politically equal despite early efforts by some women, even in the 18th century, to protest for suffrage. So, you know, it's not as simple as one side's always good, the other side's always bad. You know, even the the good side has complications and problems. And I think that, you know, addressing that and chewing on it can make for a richer story um, and can also better reflect the complications of history when we get back into, into the real world
0: yeah yeah absolutely shifting from the politics side of things for a little bit one thing that i love about these books that's a little bit different is the magic system Uh, so it's not overpowered it's not primarily something that is either outlawed or only the elite people have it Uh, it's mostly the working class and it's not treated as all that big of a deal Uh, so what inspired you to approach magic this way
1: so probably two things. The first is that when you do have really powerful magic, it's really hard not to write it in as the tool of the elite because, you know, it's it's a very valuable resource. So if you're gonna write a story differently, you kind of have to write the magic differently. And I ended up dwelling into some old coursework I had done on ancient Roman religion, weirdly enough. Okay. Um, but ancient Romans actually believed in curses and charms, um, or at least some of them did. And they had these tablets that actually survived today that people would create curses and they would like curse their neighbor's crops or make a charm for their own house. Um, and some of the most common ones that that survive are actually for horse races. So like curse the horses <laughs> of, um, you know, the green team's chariots so that they go lame or, or whatever. And so I was just fascinated by this because obviously you have people who believe that this works, but it obviously is not working all the time or is... So powerful that it is changing the course of history, but these people believe that it has just enough power that it 's helping them out either by helping them directly or by hurting someone else that benefits them. So I decided to play with that idea. What if you have magic that isn 't world changing but it helps just enough, and it 's just you know enough that you, as a person who believes in it, believes that you see the benefit. But people cannot believe in it and can easily write it off as a superstition. And so that's kind of where the magic system came out of um, for the world.
0: Right. And I I find it interesting as someone who often reads about, you know, people running up walls and flying around and throwing fireballs, that tends to be what I think of as magic systems. And, And you say maybe it doesn't have a huge impact on the world, but as we see... Later in the series, maybe subtle things can have a larger influence, kind of like uh, throwing in some science fiction in here, the whole butterfly effect thing in time travel, like one small change can radically impact the future course of events. So just like the little bit of luck here or there might might be pretty powerful, actually.
1: Right, right. And then one thing that I do kind of push the barriers on in the series is that Sophie travels a bit. And learns more about how other cultures perceive magic and begins to put some pieces together that do start to push the limits out of, of how magic works. And it's still not ever going to be a, say, a spell and it automatically happens, but but pushing those limits of power out and, and begins to have then ethical questions for her of, well, is this something that should be militarized? And is this something that eventually, especially when we get into book three, um, is this something that should be industrialized? Is this something that should be taken out of what for most of the books has been a handcraft and put into um, a more industrial mechanized process, which I just kind of wanted to play with partially as, you know, a history nerd of, you know, have <laughs> kind of a period of history where there's a rapid increase in industrialization and mechanization And the world of the Unraveled Kingdom is kind of bumping up against that moment historically where things are going to start moving away from handcraft and more into mechanization, industrialization. And will magic do the same thing?
0: That's fascinating to me, especially since the magic sort of started as being an artistic thing. So we see it in uh, sewing. We see it in music. We see it in, I think, singing Uh, so it's, it's not something that's always as like visibly flashy. It's more, or practical, I should say. Uh, it's more artistic. Um, so I I guess was the plan all along to show that progression from art into industrialization?
1: I guess kind of getting to the craft of, I I wrote the book as, um, initially as a, Stand alone that could be busted out into a series. So yes and no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, um, it was a direction that I, I early on realized that I could take, um, especially when I was thinking about textiles, because Sophie's a seamstress. She's creating work by hand, um, but already in the world that she lives in, which is somewhat analogous to the late 18th century, most of the textiles were being created on looms and in factories. So you kind of already have this tension to some degree between handcraft, but the handcraft is relying on on an industrialized process. So, you know, pretty early on when I started thinking about, well, how could you push the limits of this magic out? I kind of started thinking about, well, you have art existing alongside industry kind of already. What would that look like?
0: Right. And uh, I think at least... Some of the magic or at least specifically Sophie's approach towards magic is sewing. And uh you are at least a somewhat accomplished sewer yourself, I believe.
1: I, I well I don't know if I would say accomplished, I try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoy um a lot of different kinds of sewing. I as I say I do the, the living history stuff. So a lot of us do make our own clothing for that. And I've gotten pretty interested in making clothing the way that it would have been made in the 18th century. So, using hand sewing techniques and researching how the the garments would have been draped um, or for men's clothing tailored. And I also, I, it's just for fun, I'll, I'll do uh, modern clothing too. That's actually been one thing that's been kind of like one of my little escapes this spring has been I've been sewing a lot of just fun cotton print vintage dresses because I can. <laughs> and I'll wear them in my house by myself with no oh, one to see cool. them. <laughs> of <So>.
0: course. <laughs> so I, I guess I was going to ask how you able to work that knowledge uh, into the books, but I, I think we definitely see that with sophie she's also makes clothing uh and she seems to definitely be very knowledgeable about her trade
1: yeah, so a lot of the moments that I included you know sewing in the books it, it was the kinds of sewing that I had done myself, so you know, I, I've done rolled hems and I'll have her do a rolled hem or things like that. So I can visualize it and then I can have her kind of give a little bit of the tactile experience to the reader, which was a balancing act too, because I didn't want the book to turn into a primer on historical sewing. <laughs> but I wanted that that tactile experience and um, even kind of how she she sees people through their clothes and she sees people through you know, was this something that was made for you or did you remake it off of a secondhand piece? And she's able to kind of read people that way. And she's able to kind of read like, oh, I I know these textiles really well. I know that that's expensive cotton versus, you know, that's a cheap linen. And that says a lot to her and thereby to the reader about where she is and who she's dealing with.
0: Yeah, I know. I I definitely noticed Sophie tends to think and speak in metaphors and similes to uh, sewing. So she definitely works that in a lot.
1: Right, right. And that was just something that for me seemed very natural for someone who had spent at least 10, 15 years professionally um, and pre-professionally sewing, kind of like If you've ever, you know, been around farmers, they kind of relate everything back to, to that, or, you know, people who've been in the military, like everything kind of gets related back to, to those metaphors. So for me, it was a a natural way to kind of show not only a little bit more about the world that she lived in and the trade that she applied, but also a little bit about her and her worlds and how she perceived other people and other places in her world.
0: I think even most of the titles sort of have that same going on. I know torn, you can look at the cover visually and you see it's like a tear in fabric trying to be stitched back together. And also, Sophie is torn between you know what what side does she support?
1: Yeah, exactly. And then um, with with Frey, we were kind of like that's where everything just starts to unravel. Um, without giving any spoilers, it, it looks like things are going well, and then they're not. So <laughs> um, <laughs> the idea of things are fraying, and then. Rule kind of seems to break the pattern a little bit, but if you're drafting a pattern or tailoring, you kind of have to like rule, um, or use a ruler to kind of measure out kind of how you're, you're going to be shaping and cutting the fabric. So that was sort of the, the idea behind that title. Um, it's, it's. Somewhat related, but more importantly, it was four letters and fit with the design really well. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, that that's definitely an important consideration. And I did suspect that it still was on theme with uh the sewing and the fabric, but I was not a smart enough person to figure it out.
1: <laughs> it's it's a little bit less obvious probably than the other ones. But also, um, with you know, by the time we get to book three. Sophie as a seamstress is a little bit less important. And Sophie as everything she's grown to be is, is more important that she's kind of this, um, soft statesman character and she's negotiating alliances and contracts with, um, with foreign entities. And she's more than, than just a seamstress at that point, which is of course a challenge for her because she styled herself as a seamstress for so long that now she has a new role. That's, that's challenging to kind of grow into and accept that that she has even as an adult matured past that early adulthood phase in her life. It's kind of funny. I've and this this is not something that's something I only I have experienced. A lot of people have experienced this, but that, you know, our books sometimes get mislabeled as young adult. And one thing that someone said to me at one point was like, well, but Sophie does change a lot of the series. And I was like, well, adults <laughs> change too. <laughs> like, yeah. We're totally allowed as, you know, through your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, you, you get to keep changing. It's it's permissible. So, <laughs> All
0: right. And uh, adult books do have character arcs as well.
1: Yes, this is true. <laughs> but yeah, I was just kind of fascinated by that idea of like, well, no, ad- adults are allowed to keep changing. That's, that's. I, 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 I firmly believe that. I'm going to keep writing adult characters who change and reinvent themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I would like to think that I am still changing and not all of my personal growth occurred when I was a teen because that, that would be kind of depressing.
1: I really hope not. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I was finished at 20.
0: <laughs> no, not, not even a little bit. <laughs> Uh, Well, uh, at the time of this recording, the book's not quite out yet, but for everyone listening, it is available now. So, I guess, Rowena, how does it feel to be done with this series? I'm assuming it's a trilogy.
1: Yes, yes. Um, It's kind of strange at this point. You know, I I turned in my last edits months ago, so I mean, my hands have been off for quite a while, and it's been, um, you know, in the, the final production stages that are an author doesn't really have a whole lot to do with. So it's kind of strange in in a way that it's, you know, it's it's been over in my head for a while, but now it really is. This is the last last hurrah for it. In some ways I'll 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 miss it. In other ways I'm kind of excited to go explore some other things. So yeah, it's it's been real.
0: (laughs) Uh, well Switching gears a little bit, because you are also a podcaster, in addition to a writer. So the podcast you're on, World Building for Masochists, uh, you're one third of it, along with Alexander Rowland and Marshall Ryan Mareska. I'm curious, how, how did the podcast come about?
1: Well, we were um, kind of bullshitting on Twitter um, about world building
0: stuff. <laughs> oh, the best um, origin story.
1: And, and someone at some point said something like, this would make a great podcast and then i i i think i want to say that it was alex who um popped into dms and was like well should we um and that that's where <laughs> it came from <laughs> but we, we we um are releasing episodes biweekly and it's just about all kinds of deep dives that you can get into with world building so whether you're writing or reading, or we have some folks who are gamers or doing tabletop gaming um, and just kind of want to get into the what makes a world feel real and what makes it rich and what makes it fun. So we've done all kinds of angles on parts of a world that you can, can flesh out and play with.
0: And within the podcast, you're building your own world, I think.
1: Yes. Yes. That's kind of one of our, our bits is that we'll discuss topics, but then we also kind of apply those topics to a world that we are kind of just creating off the cuff, um, which is fun because it's kind of like that game where someone adds part of a story and then you have to stick with that when <laughs> you add your part of the story. Um, so, so we kind of do that with each other. And every time we have a guest star come on, they add an additional piece, um, to the puzzle and we kind of have to like spin it all together. And it's, it's kind of fun.
0: Yeah. And, uh, now that this podcast has been releasing for a while, are there any key takeaways you've learned from this studying of world building, uh, and anything that you would take and apply towards your writing?
1: Um, so I think one thing we kind of touched on earlier, which is that, you know, you you don't want to show your work, which is not something that I was usually tempted to, (laughs) to do anyway, but it is a good lesson that we, we talk a lot about, um, on the podcast. Um, kind of the iceberg theory that for every bit that the reader sees, you have a whole bunch supporting it underneath. Um, but you don't need to show that part. Um, so, so I think that's kind of important that you're not bogging down your writing with world building, that the world being is there, um, as a support, um, at least in, in the craft, in the crafting of a novel. And, you know, I, We totally encourage people, if you want to do world building just because you think it's fun and you enjoy it, do that. Like, not every end goal needs to be writing a novel. Um, But when you are writing a novel, there's a certain element of craft that comes in with, you know, paring down what's seen versus what's unseen, um, something else that we play with a lot is the idea of choosing versus presuming the world that you're building, um, the choices that you're making in that world. And what we kind of mean by that is that just because something works a certain way in our society or historically, or more often what we perceive to be historically, um, because there's a lot of, of variation historically, that doesn't mean that that has to be how it works in your world. So you can really interrogate a lot of your assumptions and say, you know, okay, just because medieval England was, you know, patrilineal and patriarchal, do I have to do that for my story about knights? Or can I do something else? And then once you start kind of poking those presuppositions and, and playing with what you can replace them with and and saying, okay, you know, I'm going to have something different. Probably the third big thing is internal consistency, which is once you change one thing, there's a ripple effect of what else does that change? And I think one of the ones we kind of talked about was in our made up world, we have a culture that all of the, the children are raised communally. So like you have a kid, it's not your kid, it's the community's kid. And they're raised, you know, as a group by kind of all these older folks. And well, what does that do to inheritance? Because you aren't going to have a bloodline inheritance if you don't have a concept of my own kid. And like, it's just turtles all the way down at that point of all the different things that, that change when you change one small factor of a society or a culture.
0: I imagine, especially as a fantasy writer, there's a lot of that internal consistency that you have to keep up with. And I really like that idea of choosing versus presuming, because so often, you know, I see people online go, oh, but historical accuracy, it has to be a patriarchy, and women had no power, and that's, that's kind of a lot of assumptions from people who often don't really know how it actually was historically, and it doesn't have to be that way in fantasy.
1: Right, and it, it is, it's kind of a funny juxtaposition of, on one hand, like actually historically, that's not entirely true. Or here are examples that counter that. And also it's fantasy. So screw it. You can kind of do whatever you want, as long as it makes sense.
0: Right. And I know, uh, I believe you chose deliberately to have a patriarchal society in the unraveled kingdom and kind of show your main character, Sophie, working within that to affect change. But have you considered maybe in a future project, shaking that up, playing around with it and choosing something different?
1: I have. I think that that's something I'd like to play with at some point. I I did want to, in the inter kingdom, kind of show how a person can claim agency in a society that doesn't necessarily endeavor to want them to have it. Because I think that those stories are important because we live in a world that's often not entirely just and people don't have agency handed to them. And so I think that there is value in having stories that show sort of how people claim agency in a world that's not necessarily kind to them. Um, But I think there's also a lot of value in stories that just show this is how it could be. It could look like this. And, and, And that's nothing new for fantasy. You have a lot of stories in fantasy that show matriarchal societies or that show kind of ways that authors have interrogated presets and said, okay, well, it could look different. I think one thing that I'm seeing now in a lot of fantasy is then interrogating that even further. And instead of say, seeing a matriarchal society as, well, this would solve all of our problems, kind of saying, well, this would create different problems. (laughs) What would this look like? And so I think that that's, it's a really fun time, I think, to be reading fantasy, um, as well as writing it because people are playing with a lot of that stuff in, in really fun ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm so grateful that I am getting into the fantasy genre now and not like 20 or 30 years earlier. Uh, Not that the works back then were bad or that there was uh, a lack of fantasy, but it's just an exciting time to be a genre fan at the moment.
1: It absolutely is. You know, and because I I do, I think about, um, there's certainly some older things that, you know, I adore. I, I unabashedly do love Lord of the Rings despite plenty of things that I can point out, like I would not do that if I were writing. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, I also look at some of the things like some of the, um, the fantasy that came out, you know, like the Conan the Barbarian kind of stuff or the, the gore books. And you're just like, Oh, as a woman, (laughs) I would not have enjoyed fantasy if this was Uh, what I thought it was, if this is the only thing that I thought that it could be. So I'm, I am glad for readers getting into it now that there's so much more, there's so much more diversity. There's so many more stories. Um, you can find something that is a better entree perhaps than, than previous generations had.
0: Well, has there been uh, anything you've been reading lately that you can recommend in particular?
1: Oh, gosh. Okay. I have to do the thing where I make sure that I am remembering titles correctly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I have been reading a lot of short fiction lately, just because that's where my brain span is right now. And I'm really enjoying um, my I think everyone knows about uncanny magazine, but it's like every time that that comes out, that's my, that's my treat. I go and I read cover to cover, um, the whole thing while hiding in my room from my kids. Um, in terms of recent novels, um, I think it is out in June, but I really enjoyed—I um, got an advanced copy of Melissa Caruso's The Obsidian Tower, and that was just such a fun escape, just nonstop action, fun read. Um, so if that's the kind of thing that you are looking for right now, and I think a lot of us are, I would definitely uh, jump in on that. Um, I haven't finished the trilogy yet, um, but I've also really enjoyed Tate Thompson's Rosewater series that was one that my dad is a huge sci-fi fan and I gave him a copy of that and he re- like buzzed through it in like a day and a half and he just came back and was like, that was really weird. And like that, that's his like <laughs> highest praise. That was really weird. Um, so I've really enjoyed, um, those books. Um, and I just started, started, um, Sam Hawks, um, city of lies and I'm really enjoying that too.
0: Oh yes. I love that book. Yes. Um, well, uh, After we've talked about other people's writing, what can we expect from you in the future? Do you have any ideas you're knocking around? uh, Anything you can share about what we might see from you next?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I'm definitely still working on a a couple different projects. Um, To be perfectly honest, I don't know how our current situation is going to um, change what's getting, um, how much and what is getting published in the next couple of years. Um, But um, I'm definitely still writing. I promise not to write the fantasy of the person stuck in their house with their family <laughs> for six months straight, um, even though that seems very apt right now. Um, I'm kicking around some more short fiction just because um, I'm really enjoying a lot of what I'm reading and I'm enjoying um, the experimentation that short fiction has and just kind of getting to dive headfirst into something and and play with, with those kinds of things. Like, Let's take a big risk in this writing because I I can keep another 10,000 words and and that's fun. So yeah, keeping busy under lockdown with writing, I think is my theme right now.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. As if there's not uh, enough other things to keep busy with at the moment as well. So this does seem like a strange question, given that we are, most of us, under some sort of lockdown at the moment, but I always do like to ask, what's one thing that you're just ridiculously excited about right now?
1: Oh gosh. Um, I'm going to go completely not writing or reading related at all and say, um, I, I am a new chicken owner this year.
0: Um, Ooh, okay. Tell me more.
1: (laughs) We moved to the country from, um, gosh, like last spring. And it was too late to get chickens last year by the time we got settled. And I'd always wanted to get chickens. So we planned from like last fall on that this was the spring we were getting chickens. And so, um, yes, it's hilarious. They come, um, in the mail and you have to go to the post office and pick up this like cheaping box. Um, and it really is cheaping <laughs> like the whole time it's just like cheaping. And, and you, you though after the whole post office was cheaping. Cause again, I kind of live um, out in the country. And apparently it was, everyone gets their chicks day. Um, so oh, I walk that, in the post office, it's all <laughs> cheaping. Um, and yeah, so I have, um, almost eight week old, uh, pullets right now, nine of them. So they are, they are so stupid and so fun. So that's...
0: <laughs> you, is there a risk of them like flying away or like how, how do you contain them?
1: They're in a coop, so um, they have a coop with a little attached run, and they aren't um, being allowed to free range yet because um, they're still kind of small. And um, I'm I'm hoping that they'll get a little bit bigger and a little bit tougher <laughs> at some point. <laughs> but yes, at some point they will free range. They can't fly very far, but they can fly. So that will be the next adventure is going to be when they free range. How do I get them back in the coop at night? Um, <laughs> So, I've heard they respond well to treats, so we'll see how that goes. That
0: that that sounds incredible. I uh, <laughs> I don't think I know any other chicken owners, so that's pretty fascinating. Yes.
1: They're they're fun, and I um they are the breed that we got is um Americanas or Easter Eggers. They're kind of a mutt breed, but they lay blue and green eggs. So I'm really excited for once ah. they start laying eggs, finding out what colors we get will be a surprise.
0: That's you see. I, I should have guessed that that was a thing, but I kind of figured you've got your white eggs and your brown eggs and that's it. But <laughs> I guess that's just what I see at the store.
1: Right, right. But I guess, yeah, they there's a, a green egg gene and they um, they produce green and blue eggs if they have that gene. I guess and occasionally pink. I like my, my oldest daughter is a girly girl and she has her fingers crossed for pink eggs. She's like, <laughs> so we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I think that about wraps up everything I have for you today. Uh, Rowena Miller, this has been wonderful. I'm so glad you could come on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.
0: You can find Rowena Miller on Twitter as at Rowena M or at our website, RowenaMiller.com. Still torn about picking up these books or maybe your resolve is just starting to fray. If you like political intrigue, military logistics and the weaponization of artistic magic I think you'll find a lot to love in the Unraveled Kingdom series. Dare I say, it rules. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyn.com, or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server and chat with us live. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon, where you get early access to episodes before anyone else, and we get to buy better mics for the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's it for this week. Until next time.